You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. A long time ago, in a studio far, far away, a culture-defining franchise was born. Nobody knew what we were doing. Now, the real story of Star Wars from the people who were there. This is never going to work. Fix it in post. This scene is shot into my foot. And for the first time ever, an exclusive interview with Marsha Lucas. I used to go in the editing room and say, who's dying today? Icons unearth Star Wars. everybody and welcome to Geekfest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone and today not only are we returning to our show which we have for quite a while taking a bit of a break but we are returning with a documentary called Icons Unearthed Star Wars that was produced and aired on Vice, the cable channel Vice. First off, I'd like to let you guys know that we are going to get back to more regular shows as we've talked about in the past, but this past couple of months, uh, a little over two months, we've been very busy at work, at our real job, or what I do for real, and we are now finally coming out of that period of time that was keeping me super busy. So hopefully I can get back to some regular shows again. I have so many topics that I'm just kind of like writing them down before I forget them. Tons of TV shows, tons of movies I've recently seen. And this is one of these television-related things, a documentary having to do with Star Wars and how it's a little different than anything else we've seen before. You know, what makes it different? You'll hear about it in a few minutes. We are going to be following up with other topics, like I said, but we do have another documentary coming up on Star Wars, believe it or not, pretty soon also. Initially, I wanted to put them both together, but it would have been over a two-hour-long show, and it took me forever just to cut this show together, because what happened was, this is a six-part documentary that I watched, and then I watched another six-part documentary, at least an hour apiece, for the episodes. So what happened is, after I watched all those 12 hours... Guess what? I watched them all over again because this second time around, I started taking notes. And man, there were a lot of notes. (laughs) So that's why I decided to cut it in half. So this particular episode, it's just about this one documentary about Star Wars. You know, we learned a lot of things. We learned a lot of new things. This is a different style of documentary. You know, we've gotten spoiled a little bit, I think. You know, with all those old Rinsler books uh, that went behind the scenes. But as I mentioned a million times before, the Rinsler books are amazing, but they are the Lucasfilm, you know, Lucas version of what happened, which is a great version because it's right from the horse's mouth. However, this one gives you a different perspective. It gives you a different account of certain events from people that were there that we might not have had access to before especially one gigantic get for this documentary, and that is Marsha Lucas. So, let's begin with Icons on Earth, Star Wars. Television is not the truth. Television is an amusement park. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're in the boredom-killing business. For our documentary, we are going straight into Icons Unearthed, and this is about Star Wars. The documentary was put together by Brian Volkweiss. It's a six-part documentary. And like I mentioned earlier, you can find it on Vice, the cable channel of Vice. It's a collaboration between the Nacelle Company and Brian Volkweiss. Now, you might know this name or this company by some of the other 
shows that they put out in the past, including The Toys That Made Us, The Movies That Made Us, and The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek. We talked about, I think, The Center Seat. That was another fantastic documentary. And the thing to keep in mind is that, as I mentioned earlier, this is a documentary that takes the style of those other shows. It's a very quick, quirky, uh, you could kind of say maybe a little gossipy, not very in-depth as far as the organization of the materials. It takes quotes from basically people that they found that are associated with the film, but are not necessarily the top people. They do recycle some stuff because obviously you can't get everybody. A lot of people have died already. But one of the biggest draws in this documentary, which is amazing, is Marsha Lucas. And as you might or might not know, Marsha Lucas was married to George early on. It was his, his first wife. And their marriage more or less collapsed around the time of Return of the Jedi. And she has basically been... Some people claim erased from history, which kind of makes a little bit of sense. In other words, you will see her credit in terms of official things that have gotten credit. In other words, she was an editor in Star Wars and she you know, participated and helped out in, in those films. But when you're dealing with the official story of Star Wars, when it comes to, for example, the Rindler books or any other Lucasfilm or I guess at this point nowadays, Disney uh, related storytelling, you don't really hear that name too much. And it kind of makes sense in a way because of the fact that that's what kind of happens when you have a divorce. It's, you know, it's kind of like one of those you have to pick a camp situation. But we'll get into that in a little bit. But it's also very interesting how in this particular documentary, you get to hear people's points of view. And it's also very telling how everybody's world is their world. In other words, you are the star of your story and everything around it is not the center of attention. You are the center of the attention and everything is built around you. Not a criticism, but it's a very common thing to do. You're seeing the story of whatever, in this particular case being Star Wars, from the eyes of someone else. And there are different players here that are going to be thrown in here. But when it comes to Marsha Lucas, you know, a lot of people give her a lot of credit for the success and the problem-solving issues that they had with Star Wars when they were putting it together. Even herself, she tells us, you know, all the different things she did, what she came up with, how she contributed. And, you know, when you kind of start thinking about it, you start to kind of go, well, wait a minute, yeah, this... This was important, this was very important, but it was usually kind of minimized when talked about or read about or watched other documentaries. But again, there is a reason for that. One of the things that not only this documentary, but the next one, I credit them a lot, is that they are able to use original footage. A lot of modern documentaries or anything having to do with Star Wars these days, the thing from Lucasfilm was that if you're going to talk about Star Wars, you're going to use the special edition footage. But in this case, this one, there is a lot of footage that is original, you know, which is great because, you know, when you're talking about a historic film, you don't want to talk about it in the term of it being fixed up and, you know, uh, directors cut it up, <laughs> that kind of thing. You want to see it from the point of view of how people saw it that day when they first saw it. You know, the fact that they were amazed by special effects, for example. You can't show a CGI, you know, X-Wing because at that, that time, that's not what they were watching. They were seeing, you know, models. And this is a thing that I appreciate on both these documentaries, that they're able to do that, to use that, that original footage. In this one, we get interviews from Howard Kazanjian, Richard Edlund, John Dykstra, Anthony Daniels, and Ken Ralston, amongst others. We kind of find out, and I think we might have known this already, that Christopher Walken was one of the first choices to play Han Solo. You know, but by George, at least when they did all these auditions and George wanted him. But according to Marsha Lucas, she had kind of lobbied for Harrison Ford. And that also, and I remember, I think I remember reading about this, that Lucas also wanted 
Toshuna Mafibi, uh, I think a Japanese actor, a famous Japanese actor, to play Obi-Wan. This way he would be more of a, kind of like a Ronin kind of character, a little more in that sense, you know. But obviously, you know, the studio always wants, you know, a draw, a big name. One of the things they mentioned here, and again, this is how it ties to Marsha Lucas, is that while George is shooting in England, he has an English editor there, kind of assembling the film, putting it together. And that's where the problems kind of started as far as the edit goes. Lucas and a lot of people did not like that first cut. When Lucas returns to the U.S. to kind of go heavy on post-production and, and, you know, pickups and that sort of thing, ILM had already been set up, and we'll go into much more detail uh, about this on the next documentary, but ILM had set up and, you know, they had a $2 million budget for special effects. The movie, I forget, I think it was like $10 or $12 million or something, but $2 million were supposed to be special effects. And because Lucas was basically starting from scratch with special effects, he had to, you know, find people, find a place and develop these theoretical camera systems to be able to handle those kind of fast dogfight kind of space effects. He loved the stuff that was done in 2001, but he wanted to take the aesthetic of 2001, but apply it to a fast moving action kind of scenario, like World War II dogfights that you've seen in movies. Well, again, the problem was that when he got back, they had already spent half their budget. They already spent a a million dollars. And they really had almost nothing to show for as far as completed shots. They were developing the technology. They were building the cameras. They were testing it out. They were tweaking everything. But they only had like two or three shots done. If you guys remember the uh, escape pod from the uh, Rebel Blockade Runner, the pod launching off of its bay into space, that was one. And the other one was one of the gun turrets in the Death Star shooting. Ironically... None of those were motion control related shots. So it was kind of like, you know, he's spending all this money on this motion control system to be able to do these things. And there's none of those shots ready yet. So there's a lot of things going on at the same time as he, when he returns, that's just making him nuts. The fact that the ILM is so slow and the fact that the rough cut looks bad. And one of the things that Marsha Lucas talks about is the fact that in that original cut, the editor at the time was taking or using more of the lighthearted takes, more of the sillier takes, if you will, as opposed to the more serious takes. And that is one of the things she talks about is the fact that the movie cannot be campy, the movie cannot be, I mean, it has some funny lines, but it cannot take a funny tone during the entire film. And that is one of the things that she says, no, no, I have to recut this and I have to, you know, use more of the serious takes that the actors, uh, you know, were performing. At one point, Fox, to kind of rein in the cost, wanted to completely eliminate the trench scene, the trench battle scene, which is basically the third act of the film. In other words, the, the film would kind of end with them escaping the Death Star. <laughs> That's it. There was no return to the Death Star to blow it up. So when they're getting close to the end now of putting it all together, Marsha Lucas starts focusing entirely on the trench run. And they bring in more editors, Paul Hirsch and Richard Chu. They're going to kind of divide up the rest of whatever's left of the film to be cut because the trench run is going to be entirely done by Marsha. Marsha Lucas also mentions that George wasn't that much against that original cut, but the studio was definitely against it, and she also didn't like that cut. So, you know, he was kind of like on the fence, but then he was like, we got to fix this, you know, and that's how how it, it came about. Another problem that Lucas had was that he didn't feel that Gary Kurtz, the producer, was kind of doing his job. And again, <laughs> this is all perspective, and I'm sure... You could get a different perspective if Gary Kurtz was still alive and he could kind of defend himself and explain himself. But at least his point of view was more that, you know, when he was shooting in England, for example, he had a lot of problems with the crew there. They didn't get along. The hours were very strict. The relationship between the crew and the British set designers and the uh, camera people and the DPs and all that stuff, it was completely different and they did not warm up to George. And he kind of held 
Gary sort of responsible for that in terms of he's it's not his fault that they're acting that way, but it is his responsibility to kind of make it work, to get through to those people to make it work. And that's one of the things that he was kind of like, that's one of the many things that led to the eventual split between George and Gary. Now, the reason Marsha Lucas was brought in as, first of all, it's his wife. And second of all, she had recut American graffiti for George. So there was already a history there of her being a very good editor. And, you know, during her tenure, you know, of editing, she was a very sought after editor. Marsha Lucas also talks about a one point during the, the making of the film, I guess, where it was suggested by Brian De Palma, one of their friends, very famous uh, director, later on, that the, the whole thing about the force should be diminished because it was kind of distracting people and it was kind of like a little too much. But according to her, she was the one who kind of lobbied to keep the whole idea of the force and to make it prominent in the story. And she kind of had to convince George to do that. At a later point, it is also credited with Brian De Palma of him rewriting the crawl, the beginning crawl, to kind of give it a little more direct access to the story as soon as you walk in there. During this section of the documentary, we start to get hints of Lucas's long-term plans, uh, which eventually end up being what today we know as Pixar in terms of a computer graphics related division of Lucasfilm or ILM, avid technology, uh, you know, looking into nonlinear editing, which is something he wanted to do for a long time, Skywalker Ranch, the building of a almost, you could call it like an artist community where filmmakers can go and do some of their work away from Hollywood, and THX Sound, once again, modernizing, digitizing, bringing sound into a whole other level that had never been done before. So by the time he gets to do Empire Strikes Back, as opposed to Star Wars having to run to Fox for money all the time, this time he takes out a loan. He funds it with his own money, in a way, you could say, by taking out a loan and you know paying the bank back that loan. That particular loan was with Bank of America. While they're prepping Empire, this is something that will start to happen quite often. You know, when you have a big project come in, you have a lot of people working for Lucasfilm, especially at ILM and other areas like that. John Dykstra started to have a split with George early on, and we'll go into much more detail when we do the ILM documentary. But as a result of a split... He formed his own company called Apogee. But in that in-between period, he sort of, I don't know if you can say leased or used with George's permission, the ILM equipment, the Dijkstra Flex machines, you know, optical printers, to do some work for other entities, you know, to kind of supplement the fact that there was no work to be done and that he was kind of on his way out anyway. This might have been part of the deal on the split between Lucas and John Dykstra. The particular show that he was working on, and a couple of people, you know, ILMers were working on, including Ralph McQuarrie, was Battlestar Galactica. They started doing all their effects there. That eventually would lead to Lucas suing Universal for the themes and the shots and the uh, characters in Battlestar Galactica, the storyline. But that's a whole other story that has nothing to do with this. So as they're transitioning into Empire, Richard Edlin kind of becomes the head person that John Dystra used to be. Around that time, Lawrence Kasdan was writing Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Spielberg and Lucas were both uh, you know, pretty impressed by him. So Lucas offers him to help, you know, if he could help him write Empire Strikes Back. And that's because the original writer that Lucas had hired, Lee Brackett, did not work out. Not only did she not work out in terms of what he wanted from a writer, but she died right after submitting her first draft. And, you know, it caused a big, you know, void in the writing side of things. You know, Lucas didn't want to return to writing. He doesn't really like writing. It's apparently his most difficult thing about filmmaking. And that's how Lawrence Kasdan came into the picture. Now, according to Marsha Lucas, William and Gloria Hux, which are a couple, uh, they're writers, 
They're filmmakers too, I believe, who worked on some future projects for Lucasfilm and other filmmakers. They used to punch up scripts and they helped Lucas, I believe, punch up American Graffiti. So they were brought in to help a little bit, again, you know, put in a couple of jokes here or there, you know, punch up work. And according to her, they are the ones who suggested the twist of Vader being Luke's father. According to her, they were all chatting about, you know, how, she, you know, we need some kind of, you know, reveal. We need some kind of big, you know, oh my God moment. And kind of as a joke, one of them suggested, hey, why don't we make uh, Vader Luke's father? And then everybody was like, you know what, that's, that might be a good idea. So it's funny because she credits these two writers. But at one point, Lucas, I remember hearing an interview where he credits himself. So it's kind of hard to, you know, kind of put your finger on who's who's telling the truth or are they both telling the truth? You know, is it as a result of a of a brainstorming session between three or four people and they all take credit for it? Or is there individual credit given or should be given, you know, for very specific things done, which kind of might go to the crux of most of the information that comes from Marsha Lucas. And that is. Yes, there's no way around the fact that Lucas tries to downplay her involvement. On the other hand, how much is it her point of view in terms of, obviously, you perceive the world from your eyes, you know? So where do you actually draw the line in terms of saying, well, this person is really responsible for this or that? But again, if you don't begin with a baseline of, you know what, interview the person and let's get their side of the story, then you cannot make, you know, it's a lot harder to make those judgment calls and figure out, try to figure out who's telling the truth and who's not. The role of Lando was apparently also created just in case Harrison Ford did not return for the final film. Apparently, Harrison was not signed on to do the third film. So when they shot Empire, they kind of threw him on a cliffhanger at the end where he could have been dead or he could have been revived. Either one would work. And luckily, obviously, we all know that he did get it, but it was a backup plan, you know, another kind of rogue pirate kind of character. Howard Kazanjian, who is pretty prominent in this documentary and directs the next documentary, is very, very candid on this particular one. He talks about how during Empire, Carrie Fisher's drug problem was becoming very serious to the point where they would do take after take after take and she just couldn't hit, you know, her marks. For whatever reason, he was asked to deal with it because he was kind of a producer at this point, Howard Kazanjian, which will lead to the rift between uh, Lucas and um, Kurtz. And according to Marsha Lucas, Kazanjian came up to, to Marsh because he didn't think he could really do much for her in terms of why is she going to listen to him? He approached apparently Marsha Lucas and Marsha Lucas approached Carrie Fisher to kind of let her know that she needed to get straight or else things were going to go out of control. An ongoing issue with Empire was that, and, and again, this is a continuation if you think about it, of an ongoing pet peeve, if you want to call it, between George and Gary, is that Empire started going over budget for many different reasons, including Carrie Fisher's drug issues, Irving Kirshner, the director, you know, he was directing now. George didn't want to direct. He wanted to kind of give that all away to a different person so he can concentrate on the big picture, you know, on the post-production and kind of overseeing everything. But he gave Kirshner all the space he wanted, but he tried to kind of rein him in through Gary Kurtz. And Gary Kurtz apparently couldn't do it, or at least couldn't do it to the satisfaction of George. So as a result of this, they're starting to go over budget. They're starting to go over schedule. So the problems are starting to build. And according to Howard Kazanjian, the biggest rift that eventually happened between George and Gary is that according to Howard Kazanjian, because he was kind of looking at the numbers too at the same time, even though George was being kept appraised of the fact that they were going over schedule, they were running over the schedule, they needed to add more days to the schedule, the question of the budget always seemed to be on track as far as George was concerned. And the 
conclusion that they come to is that Gary is not telling George about the over-budget problem. And that was it. All of a sudden, by the time it all comes out, they're $5 million over budget. So at that point, that's when kind of quietly, Howard Kazanjian starts to take on a lot of the producing responsibilities uh, without really Gary knowing about it. So what happens at this point is George has to take out another loan, a second loan from Bank of America for $5 million. And once again, he has to put up you know, all his property and all his assets as collateral for this. And even the bank you know, was a little worried about it. And they apparently demanded, according to Kazanjian, that the only way that they would give him this loan is if he would make sure that Kazanjian was in charge of producing, you know, in charge of the money, as opposed to Gary Kurtz. Originally, they were supposed to be, I think, a 16-week schedule, and they ended up having 29. So you're talking about, you know, doubling the schedule pretty much in terms of how much time was needed. The second time around, Paul Hirsch is brought in once again to cut the film. Marsha is not getting involved with the cutting of the film this time around. She, at this point, her and George had adopted a, a child, and they were start, you know, they were starting to kind of raise a child at the same time as the movies were taking place and George is working. George is trying to focus as much as possible on the special effects side because he obviously doesn't want a repeat of what happened last time, which shouldn't be happening because, again, the last time was it was mainly because of the fact that they were inventing a lot of this hardware that they're using to create the special effects. This time they have the hardware. However, this time around, they are dealing with a lot more stop motion because of the, uh, the, you know, the ad-ads. So, you know, I, I don't think it's as bad, but it is more demanding in terms of more effects are needed. When eventually Empire gets released, it kind of gets a mixed reaction because remember this, you know, the film didn't become the classic that it is nowadays off the bat. There were some people that were a little miffed who didn't understand that, wait a minute, Vader is Luke's father. How does that, how could that be? That's, that doesn't make sense. You know, that, that kind of a reaction. And one of the things that they claim here is that, and again, this is why this particular documentary is a little tabloidy, if you will. It's a lot about rumors or I heard or so-and-so told me, you know, that kind of stuff, which again, it's hard to categorize as 100% fact or not. But one of the things that, that is brought up here is that George was apparently disappointed at the fact that Irvin Kirshner got so much critical praise, and I'm talking about critics, for his work in Empire, you know, that Lucas was being kind of overshadowed by this guy. And at the same time, you got to remember, you know, Kirshner is going over budget and he's he's not shooting it the way George wanted it to be shot. I'm not saying visually, I'm saying budgetary wise and, and, and money and schedule. He's not hitting those marks that he wanted him to hit and that in theory, Gary Kurtz was uh, supposed to be here to do. Eventually, Gary finds out that he is out. According to uh, Howard Kazanjian, he kind of found out by accident through Howard Kazanjian because eventually, you know, he kept asking, well, why is he here? What's he doing here? As the thought of going towards Return of the Jedi, or at that time, Revenge of the Jedi, you know, he, he, he says, well, I'm the producer. And it's like, well, wait a minute, I'm the producer. It was one of those deals where eventually somebody had to talk to him. I think it was George and kind of set it straight. Now, keep in mind, again, uh, Gary Kurtz is not around to defend himself about these particular allegations. There is a lot of material out there from interviews in the past, because I'm sure that's probably the most frequently asked question to Gary Kurtz uh, back then and you know up until the day he died is, why did you not do Return of the Jedi? And the answer that you usually get is something having to do with creative differences. You know, George wanted to go one way, I wanted to go a different way, and then we kind of parted, you know, that kind of thing. But here, they kind of make it a little more clear or emphasize more that it was a decision of George to not bring him on the third time around because of his disappointment of, you know, what happened in Star Wars with the British crew, what happened in Empire with the over budgets, you know, and the over scheduling and all that stuff. And the fact that, according to them, he kept it quiet from George until the last conceivable minute, until all of a sudden they needed those extra $5 million. By the time we get to Return of the Jedi, George now is able to fund the movie 
with his own money. He's got enough money from Empire between the toy deals and the rights to sequels and all that stuff. He's starting to rake in the money and now he's got enough money to be able to fully fund the film without having to go to a bank for help. Now, this is nothing really earth-shatteringly new, but once again, George wanted a director, but he specifically wanted a director to do Jedi that would do exactly, exactly what he wanted him to do. Anthony Daniels kind of says that he was kind of looking for a yes man to direct, somebody who would just do exactly what he wanted, like a almost like a ghost director, you know, situation where the person's there, but in reality, the other person's calling the shots. According to Gazanjian, David Lynch was the person that was offered the job. And apparently he accepted the job. But then the next day he kind of said, you know what, I changed my mind, I don't want to do it. And from what I remember from some Lynch interviews, I think it had to do with that. It had to do with the fact that he didn't want to have to have somebody watching over him the entire time. He didn't want to have somebody telling him what to do the entire time. He didn't want to do it that way. So their second choice person, Richard Marquand, that was the person that ended up getting the job. His previous notable film was Eye of the Needle, which, again, a very um, obscure film, if you will. It's a, it's a nice little uh, World War II thriller, but not the type of thing. Again, even Kirshner, if you think about it, was a an unknown, if you will. I mean, the guy had done some movies in the past. I think The Eyes of Laura and Mars or something like that. And, and he was a professor at the university, you know, he, but he wasn't like a hot Hollywood commodity, you know, that everybody's after, just like Richard Marquand. I would say Richard Marquand is maybe even less. I don't know. I can't really tell. Now, overall, from these interviews, you don't get a very pleasant or complimentary image of Richard Marquand. Howard Kazanjian notes that well, they were in pre-production and, you know, getting things ready to go and, you know, getting the set ready that Marquand would kind of show up late quite a bit. And there were certain pre-production duties that had to be done, or at least that were expected to be done by the director and that wouldn't happen. And Kazanjian was making some of those decisions in place of Marquand. Now, the first thing they shot for Jedi was the sandstorm sequence, which was eventually completely removed from the film. And one of the main reasons was because it didn't look good. It, it, it just did not look right. And it could have been the sign of what was to come in terms of Lucas not being happy with what rushes were being sent out, you know, in the beginning. Anthony Daniel says that Mark I was kind of out of his depth. This film was too much of a production for him. And George Lucas was already there on the set, even though he, you know, he definitely didn't want to be on the set. And that was one of the main goals. Again, when he hired Irene Kirshner, when he hired Richard Marquand, was that he would have somebody, especially with Marquand, that would just do exactly what he wanted him to do without having to be supervised. But he was there doing some of the second unit work. So he can kind of keep an eye on things from a distance. However, as... Lucas became more and more disenchanted with Marquand. Again, this is all according to like Roger Christian and Howard Kazanjian. Lucas started shadowing Marquand. And Roger Christian is asked to take over as the second unit director. This way he can kind of pick up Lucas's duties while Lucas goes and watches Marquand. It's also around this time that we hear about the marriage problems that George was having with Marsha. The story goes that... There was an employee in Lucasfilm, I believe maybe at Skywalker Ranch. His name was Tom Rodriguez, who was the head of the stained glass shop. And the rumor going around was that Marsha was starting to have a relationship with this individual as a result of the quickly dissolving marital situation. She continually denies this to this day that there was something going on initially. Howard Kazanjian, again, going back to the Marquand uh, situation, says that one of his issues was that he could not visualize the special effects portions of the things that were being shot because they weren't there. And that is one of the most difficult things to do that not only for actors to have to act against visual effects that are not there, but a director that has to kind of visualize, you know, framing certain shots and figuring out where things go and how to react to certain things. That is something that he just was not seemed to be prepared to handle. 
Kazanjian also talks about a situation where Kenny Baker, dressed up as an Ewok, was supposed to have a bigger role. He was supposed to play a more important Ewok. But due to him allegedly being drunk at the time and, you know, being off with other actors having fun, they kind of shifted focus and made Warwick Davis a more important character, you know, the Wicked character. And kind of like, I mean, when you see the final product, Wicked is a very important character, but initially it was supposed to be a character that Kenny Baker was playing. One of the stipulations for Richard Marquand to direct was that he could use his own editor. And apparently it was agreed, which again, it's kind of dangerous because Lucas has a history of you know, especially with Star Wars, that he did not really like other people's cut of his film. Well, Marquand's editor was named Sean Barton. And as the, again, the rushes started coming in, the rough cut was being put together, Lucas was already having that issue of it's not cutting right. The things are not looking good. He at one point decided that he was just going to recut the whole film himself. And people have described them as, you know, looking very disconnected and exhausted one of the things that Marsha Lucas talks about is that she didn't ask for a divorce. She said she wanted a timeout. Again, I'm not sure exactly, you know, what that means to them or to certain people, but I think it sounds almost like she wanted a break in their status. But Lucas said no, no timeout. It would have to be a divorce. He didn't want to, I guess, you know, give her that safety net. However, at the same time, Marsha Lucas agreed, like she did with Star Wars, to help cut Return of the Jedi. She focused mainly on all the emotional scenes, and she kind of softened it a little bit. In other words, grabbed the more emotional takes that the actors were giving them, as opposed to just, you know, the more loud or the more, you know, bombastic takes. She went for the more subtle, emotional ones. And that's not just for things like you know, Luke and Vader, but just for everybody. He, she wanted to kind of give it her more of an, a, an emotional feel to the performances. One of the things that Howard Kazanjian also mentions that he contributed on Jedi was that when Vader is watching Luke getting, you know, electrified by the Emperor, that there's more of a back and forth decision-making for Vader, because obviously you can't really act too much on a mask. So if you guys remember that back and forth looking of one to the other, it kind of ratchets it up the tension of, will he do it? Will he help his son? And that, he says, was part of his contribution. He also said that he suggested, and they did, is an explosion, a form of explosion as the Emperor is hitting the bottom of the canyon, you know, when he's being dropped down that chute. To give the Emperor a more of a, I guess, supernatural power kind of thing. For the action sequences in, in Return of the Jedi, specifically the bike chase in Endor, they did a lot of pre-visualization. The earlier version of pre-vis, you know, nowadays it, it could be done, and it is done with computer graphics, you know, low-end computer graphics, but because the product ends up being most likely that computer graphic, but looking a lot better. But back then, they were experimenting with using video cameras and action figures. So they kind of mapped out the entire sequence on video. And they, you know, no longer were they using, because again, how do you find something that resembles that? Uh, you know, the old black and white World War II footage. That was just something to kind of get the ball rolling in Star Wars so people could imagine what he was thinking about. Here, those biker scout chases, they couldn't do that. So they used toys. They basically built toys and they used actual Kenner figures, you know, to, for the different heights and the, for the different scales, the 12 inch ones or the three and three quarter ones. That's really cool. Now, you got to also remember that with Anthony Daniels, this is part of, I guess you can call it the slight flaw of this particular documentary is that anytime you have an interview with Anthony Daniels, he's a bit of a, a character. And he's always very cynical and he's always very jokey and he will try to passive aggressively, you know, say something without saying it. And that seems to be that most of this interview went that way. He's not afraid to criticize somebody when somebody kind of gives him the green light to do it. He does it even more. But even with regular answers, you could always kind of try to read between the line as to what he's saying. Marsha Lucas mentions, and we'll talk about this later, about how when they actually did divorce, how she got 
you know, whatever cash assets they had, they had to divide them. However, their real estate ownings, all the properties that Lucas owned, she did not get a 50-50 share. She only got a portion of that. I'm not sure exactly how that happened because I know that especially California is a very known state for, you know, 50-50, you know, marriage splits down the middle. So I don't know exactly how that took place. As we finish with Return of the Jedi, Lucasfilm kind of goes into this next phase of existence. There are still some Star Wars-y kind of related projects in the pipeline, including a couple of Ewok television movies, an animated show of the Ewoks and an animated show of the droids. But they are not successful. They are just not successful. They're out there and they kind of flounder, if you will. Some people refer to this as the dark times. Uh, ironically enough, you know, as a Star Wars term and the in-between period uh, between the original trilogy and what eventually will become the special editions and the prequels. In this period of time, Lucasfilm focuses on working for other filmmakers, a lot of them friends of George Lucas, and in developing technology that Lucas has always been interested in, and a lot of it having to do with digital technology which we kind of saw the beginning, very young stages of it already on some of these previous films and some of these in-between Star Wars project kind of films. But little by little, they keep inching forward. When they put together the young Indiana Jones show, this is where Rick McCollum steps into the picture as producer. I believe Howard Kazanjian was asked, but he couldn't do it because he had other commitments. So... This is where we start to get the initial appearances of Rick McCollum. During this period of time, the only other thing you have to kind of keep Star Wars alive is the Expanded Universe books. And you have a ton of movies that will get you to the next phase of Star Wars and the movie theaters. And that includes movies like Willow, Star Trek II, Young Sherlock Holmes, toys, games that are put out under the Star Wars banner as they start to return to kind of prime the pump of what's coming down the line, you know, also to obviously make money because there's money to be made here. Movies like The Abyss, Terminator 2, and finally Jurassic Park are the ones that push special effects forward so much that kind of wakes Lucas up into saying, all right, let's get going again. So, Going back a little bit to Return of the Jedi, as the movie was over, Lucas is divorced now. There was apparently a 50-50 cash split, but apparently no part of the company was awarded to Marsha Lucas. There's a rough estimate, and this is from another book that I'm going to be reading soon. I think it's called The Untold Story of Star Wars or something like that. I forget the name, which they do interview Marsha Lucas. This is one of the times where Marsha Lucas was interviewed a long time ago in print mode. And same thing with Hara Kazanjian, you know, in print mode, where they talk about that even though she did not get much of the property rights or profit, future profits of Star Wars or anything like that, she ended up getting somewhere between 35 and $50 million as far as the divorce went, which... I mean, that's a lot of money now. That's even more money back then. The equivalent today, I don't know how much it would be, but that's a lot of money. They also got joint custody of their adopted child, which again, that other book talks about the fact that the reason why they adopted was because Lucas was sterile. One of the first films that Lucas wanted to be, you know, a complete digital character, which is what he was hoping for, you know, one day would happen, is Howard the Duck. And when Howard the Duck was ready to go and they just could not pull it off, the effects were not there yet. You know, they haven't reached that peak that they did later in the 90s to be able to generate that kind of a character. Now, one of the things about young Indiana Jones is that they get to finally experiment with digital technology up until the point that it is there. In other words, it's not Jurassic Park, but it's good enough to be able to create battle scenes and extend crowds. Mad paintings? No, we're going to extend these sets digitally and that sort of thing. So that's where you start to kind of see that. One of the things that Kazanjian mentioned is that one of the reasons Rick McCullen was selected to be the next producer is because he could get crews to do what he wanted them to do. 
and he says something like he could turn one dollar into two dollars as far as the budget goes so that seems to be a very top priority for whoever's going to helm you know the next big project for george for young indiana jones by this time they have some new tools that they can use there's something called the edit droid which is a non-linear edit system that eventually will become avid for those of you who are into editing you will recognize that name now before Lucas can focus on the prequels, he puts out the special editions. Again, this is after Jurassic Park, and he's comfortable with the fact that the effects can be done the way he wanted them to do. And as of November of 1994, he starts writing episode one. So you gotta remember, episode one came out in 99, so it took a while for him to write and get the ball rolling on this. Lucas uses the profits from the special editions to finance the prequels and to test out all the new technology that he's going to be using in the CGI side of things. When it came time for the prequels, Lucas initially asked some of his director friends if they wanted to direct, people like Robert Zemeckis, Steven Spielberg, and they all said no. I believe at the time, if I remember some of those other interviews, it was kind of like too much of a responsibility and they did not want to carry that huge responsibility and that's why we end up with George doing it himself he's like you know what I'm just gonna do it myself and he's gonna that's that's the way you know he ended up in that manner also to help finance all this stuff coming up with the prequels as we mentioned earlier is the toys the toys relaunched in the 90s the games the video games you know all that stuff generated tons and tons of money that Lucas can then just kind of funnel back into the making you know, and the research and development into all of these films. And at this point, as they had failed earlier with Howard the Duck, Lucas's mind is set that he is going to have an all-digital character in the film, that being Jar Jar. The critical reaction to episode one was kind of mixed. There were some good things, some bad things. You know, I, I, I admit I feel the same way. But financially, it was a huge success. Again, it spun a whole bunch of new toys, which they kind of oversold or overproduced. But it got the machine really going crazy again with the toy market. But one of the things that Howard Kazanjian mentions in this period of time is that one of the things that he noticed, not only from Rick McCollum, the producer, and, and some of the people around him, is that he, he kind of surrounded himself with yes-men, people that would just not challenge him in any shape or form, which is what Gary Kurtz used to do. You know, he would kind of fight him a little bit on some of the decisions, which eventually, for one way or the other, or for other reasons, and I'm sure because of that too, ended up getting him fired from future Star Wars films. The other thing that he mentions is that the unusual reaction to episode one depends on your age. Younger people liked it, loved it, a lot more than people my age, people that grew up with the originals. And Lucas has mentioned many times before that the films are not made for adults. They're made for children. He tries to kind of focus on the kids. And that also explains how the reaction to Jar Jar is more positive the younger, you know, the, the age skews as opposed to the older age people like myself. Overall, it is described as if George is kind of working inside a bubble at this point with the other Star Wars prequel films. Again, nobody's there to challenge any of his decisions. He's the only one there making decisions. So everything he says goes. There is no pushback. He continues to progress with the technological advancements of filmmaking, including developing digital cameras and digital projectors to be able to play these things in a non-traditional celluloid, you know, 35 millimeter, 70 millimeter film format, but instead moving over to a digital environment. He starts kind of playing with it a little bit during the first film, but the first film is primarily all done in traditional film. By the time we get to the second film, Attack of the Clones, we're already now doing part digital and part film. When they were selecting who was going to play young Anakin, one of the possibilities was Leonardo DiCaprio. And he was rumored to be there for a while until the decision was made, you know, to use a different actor. The code name for, uh, for the first film before they settled on The Phantom Menace was Jar Jar's Great Adventure. So that is the name they played with uh, until they decided on the final one. 
Now, for the prequels, they bring in Jonathan Hales, who was also a screenwriter for some of the young Indiana Jones scripts. And Lucas is able to use him again, you know, to help him, you know, write the screenplays. This time around, Yoda is going to be all digital. During the Phantom Menace, they still use the puppet. But they had all kinds of problems with that puppet because it was made out of a different type of material and it was a different weight. It was a little more heavy. You know, uh, it looked different because it tried to look a little younger. But by the time we get to Attack of the Clones, they move on to an all digital Yoda. And eventually, at some point, I believe they even substituted some of the Phantom Menace Yodas with digital versions. I'm not entirely sure. But One of the things that I guess after they were either writing or shooting Attack of the Clones, uh, at some point it was suggested or it was realized that they needed another action piece during the film other than just, uh, you know, certain things that were pre-written. So the idea of the assembly line, the droid assembly line, that entire sequence with the droids having their own adventure in there, C-3PO and R2-D2, that was kind of added to just increase the action portion of the movie. One reminder about Attack of the Clones is that there are no clone outfits. Every single clone produced was all CGI. There were no real ones at all. At one point, Anthony Daniels also talks about how there was a specific scene that never made it to the final cut that he really wished George would have kept in, and that is a scene where Padme puts the skin, you know, the coverings on C-3PO. And he said it was a very special emotional scene for him that unfortunately, you know, we didn't get to see. I'm not even sure if we saw that as a uh, deleted scene uh, feature or anything like that. So Attack of the Clones came out in 2002. As we move forward to Revenge of the Sith... This is going to be the first time that a Star Wars film is going to be rated PG-13, and that is primarily due to the post-dual, you know, burned-up Anakin display, you know, of what happens to Anakin. Steven Spielberg unofficially did some of the second unit work in Revenge of the Sith, specifically having to do with the pre-visualization of the duel. In other words, planning out the entire duel in the previs manner. Now, granted, this time around, they're in full CGI mode for the previs, as opposed to back during the Jedi days where they were using action figures and, you know, models and that sort of thing. Revenge of the Sith opened up in 2005, and between all the six films up to that point, they've earned about $4.3 billion. Later on, George Lucas sells to Disney in 2012, for $4.2 billion. Howard Kazanjian talks about how he feels that he probably sold it a little cheap. He could have gotten more money for it. And George Lucas's point of view, he claims that he paid Marsha Lucas for, you know, the worth of the business, you know, originally at that time. Again, back then the business wasn't worth $4.3 billion, you know, in terms of revenue. It was what it was worth back in 1983. Marsha Lucas talks about how she feels, and I kind of agree with her in a way, that she is treated kind of like she's never existed as far as the history of Lucasfilm and Star Wars goes. Howard Kazanjian talks about how George pretty much hates her for what happened, you know, to their marriage. As a result of that, that's why we get a diminished appearance of her in books and, and accounts and documentaries and that sort of thing. And Howard Kazanjian talks about how you know, George has a completely different life now. He's remarried, and he kind of hints at the fact that George doesn't, like, return Howard Kazanjian's calls, which is kind of weird. It's like, oh, wow. Oof. It's, you know, these producers that he pairs up with, it's like, they usually end in, in a bad way. <laughs> I'm not sure what his relationship with Rick McCollum is anymore. And at the end of the documentary, uh, Paul Hirsch, the, the editor, Paul Hirsch, comes back and he talks about how one of the reasons Star Wars was so successful, uh, especially the original Star Wars, is that you get all genres in Star Wars. You get a Western, you get a action film, you get a drama, you know, you get a little bit of everything. All of the things that people in that time, in the 70s, had grown up with. 
you know, you get a little bit of that in all of these Star Wars films. Overall, I love this documentary. Granted, like I said, it is a little tabloidy and it feels a little rushed in terms of now. Granted, it's it is six parts, so there's a lot of material there. But the manner which the documentary is edited feels a little rushed. And I understand that it's also the style, as I mentioned earlier. The other documentaries that this filmmaker has done before has that that quick we want to get all these facts out before we're out of time kind of delivery. And granted that, you know, the people that are being interviewed, they're not necessarily top tier. You know, you might get one or two top tier, but you also get second tier and third tier and, you know, stuff like that. And you give them equal or as equal time. And that is one of the main things I got out of this documentary is the fact that it's all in everybody's perspective. In other words, the entire world revolves around the individual who's telling the story. You know, you want to know the Lucasfilm official story, you go to the Rinsler books. You know, you, that's where you go for that. But that will exclude certain things. In other words, you won't find much about Marsha Lucas. You're not going to get a lot of that Howard Kazangian information. You know, the details of the Gary Kurtz split. You know, you don't get a lot of that because there are certain areas that just don't want to be talked about. And this is a good example of how you kind of get in there and find out these things. Again, this is one of those situations where depending on the outcome of your relationship with Lucasfilm, Star Wars in general, or the, you know, the, the company it goes, it's one of those things where it's like, sometimes it's better just to be a fan than to participate. As much as as a youngster, I wanted to participate in all that. And to, to a certain extent, you know, it's still something that will kind of be in the back of my mind. On the other hand, yeah, what happens a lot of times to people like some of these people that because of a bad experience, it sours you to that particular brand, which is a brand that you enjoyed so much. And that's happened to me in different manners on some other entertainment related things, whether it's podcasts or, you know, whatever, famous person or a company where at one point you had, you know, good feelings about it, but then you learn something or they do something to you that hurts you. And all of a sudden you're like, oh man, I, I like these you know, this person or this company. And now I cannot, you know, I feel guilty supporting them because of what I just found out or or because of what they just did. So yeah, it's, it's really tough, uh, you know, having to put yourself in, in the shoes of another person who might've had a bad reaction to it. The other thing I noticed too, is the fact that, you know, you could easily portray George as the villain here in this documentary. Yes, he did come up with Star Wars and everything, but some of those decisions that they talk about and some of those actions that he took against people that he didn't like for whatever reason or did something that he didn't approve of, you know, again, this is a, an individual that goes from nothing, you know, to a million in terms of being responsible for so many people and so many problems and so many mid-level managers that he assigns to take care of problems and the problems either get taken care of or don't get taken care of and, and you know his reputation on behalf of everybody that works for him it's not black and white you can't just kind of hit it right in the middle it's shades of gray you know i hate to say it but I completely, completely suggest anybody interested, you know, for the diehard Star Wars fans to dig into this one. Like I said, there is that other book, Secret History of Star Wars, I think it is called. And then there's a Howard Kazanjian biography that I purchased recently that I haven't read yet, which probably might go into some of these details. We'll see. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. We went and combed over the Icons on Earth Star Wars series. You know, they're doing a, a number of these. I believe that this particular series, which is on Vice, just finished doing a Simpsons version of this. And they're about to start doing a Fast and the Furious version of this, you know, style of documentary. This one was great. It took you into certain areas that are kind of difficult to cover because they're those touchy areas that as we knew and we got even more, you know, a confirmation while watching this, that these are areas that Lucas and Lucasfilm, for that matter, really didn't want to address in the past because it's it's a little touchy. It's a little embarrassing. It's a little too personal, maybe. 
And this is the kind of information that I do remember when we used to interact with Charlie Lippincott on Facebook. These are some of those stories, some of those behind the scenes stories that never see the light of day and that they just kind of get lost in the shuffle. They get lost in for many reasons by people that are just purposely trying to make things sound different, you know, to take credit for things that they haven't done or for people that just don't want to talk about certain things. You know, these are those little bits and pieces. Now, granted, a lot of this has to do with certain people pass you know then some people feel a little more comfortable talking about what happened you know it's one of those things that you know i'm not going to say anything until that person's dead that kind of thing and you know not only as i mentioned when i with the opening that you know this is the first time we get to see marcia lucas talking about her point of view of everything but for me this is also the first time that we get to hear howard kazanjian being so candid about certain things uh, that it's a little startling. And yes, I do have, as I mentioned, these other two books I want to read, and I have them. The one about the untold secrets of Star Wars or something like that, I forget the name. And then the other one is the Kazanjian autobiography because I'm not sure if some of the stuff he talked about here made it all the way to his uh, to his book. But I do look forward to uh, these. Hopefully they'll make more. Like I said, the Fast and the Furious is the next one, which I'm not really that interested to tell you the truth. But it would be nice if they made, like, let's say one about Raiders of the Lost Ark or one about the Aliens films or, you know, that kind of thing. You know, who knows? Maybe they will. Who knows? And it is a completely different style, as I mentioned, too. It's a little tabloidy. It's a little, uh, you know, feeling a little rushed because, and again, they did it. It's six hours. And, and it's, you know, for fans, for fanboys, this is the type of stuff that we just wish they gave us more. Uh, and once again, I am hoping to be able to put out these shows at a faster pace, uh, I would say maybe one every two weeks. And I do apologize uh, for those of you who've been waiting for a, a new episode to pop up. Combination of so many things, part of it being work finally slowing down, you know, being able to kind of get back into the normal work groove that affords me a lot of time, you know, to be able to edit these shows and put them together and that sort of thing. Part of it, uh, I don't know if you want to call it pot fade. I remember reading like a podcast for dummies book many, many years ago before the show started. And they talk about all these different phases of podcasting, even though it was just kind of started at the time. And they talk about how you get to a point where you just do not put as many shows as possible. And then you kind of start, you know, putting less and less and less. And yes, it did kind of feel that way. Sometimes, uh, you know, um, this is a thankless kind of job in a way. It's a hobby, first of all. It's not a job because obviously we don't make any money from this, as opposed to some other uh, podcasters who rely on their subscriptions and their uh, uh, monetizing of their channel. That's how they survive and that's how they live. So they have to be way, way more aggressive and more controversial and more kind of like in your face with the, the programming. And for years, you know, I've, I've always said, this is a hobby. This is all we're going to do. You know, we're not going to go overboard. Whether I have uh, one viewer or 100 viewers or 1,000 viewers or however viewers we have, it really doesn't matter. I can't really devote you know, more time to it than I already do. I do enjoy doing it. My first goal was kind of like, well, let's get to the 10 year mark. We did that. We, we, we did it and we passed it. And my current goal now is to get to at least a 500th episode. So we are getting kind of close. You know, we're at 469, I believe with this one. And, and like I said, I do have other topics coming up. I'm just going to try to, you know, get myself a little, uh, you know, more on the ball when it comes to cranking these out. The editing is really the uh, the hard part, you know, but having the time and just, you know, having the energy to tell you the truth, the energy to kind of put this all together. This is something that started months ago again, and, and I kind of chronicled a little bit of it during the show when I had to take another medical related break and that kind of after effect seemed to have lasted in a different manner, you know, up until very recently where, like I said, things are getting back to normal. The, you know, the work groove is kind of going back to where it should be, not where it was, which, you know, had me 
working these ridiculous long hours and weekends and nights and I was just kind of just losing it. But now, like I said, we are settling in and hopefully I'll be able to crank these out. So in the meantime, as usual, uh, thank you for listening and hopefully some of you are back and enjoy our show and we will see you here very soon at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. As George Lucas lay in a hospital bed... George actually became so stressed out that he ended up in the hospital. ...with the weight of the world and the galaxy bearing down... Rebel base in range. ...and with the studio sharpening its axe... They say to him, you better get this done or we're going to pull the film. With all these debilitating concerns, anyone else might well have quit. But for George Lucas and his audacious space opera, there was one thing he could pin his hopes on. The Force? Actually, something even more mysterious than that. He said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll fix it later in post. That's right. It's in the enigmatic world of post-production and editing, where George Lucas puts his faith. You know, editing has always been Lucas's favorite part of the process. I mean, it's the thing he does really well. But someone who did it even better was George's award-winning wife, Marsha Lucas. Marsha was his partner. I mean, yes, it's George's world, it's George's vision, George's idea, he's the director, but she was an inspiration to him, she pushed him, she gave him new ideas. She was with him every step of the way. And all of a sudden, we, these young mavericks, were making all these hit movies. This is the story of just how far Marsha pushed George further than anyone might know. We didn't just make it work. We made something really, really, really special. In fact, you might even say there was quite a bit of force involved. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perón, copyright 2022. <laughs>